0: Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money Behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day And Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire Uh, Kieran, I hope you're well, I always do Um, In the spirit of full disclosure that producer Guy likes us to 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 indulge in It's Wednesday evening Um, We didn't win The FSA award For best podcast Kieran Um, Probably no surprise Considering I wasn't invited To the award ceremony Um, Even worse than that Kieran Just this afternoon Our listeners may think There is nothing worse Surely than being nominated For an award And losing to An inferior pod you know, with more listeners you know, how that works I don't know it's like Hartlepool playing Liverpool and you decide the outcome by letting Liverpool fans vote who wins but never, leave that aside Kieran and any element of sour grapes
1: <laughs> you're not bitter but, at all
0: <laughs> as I've said before Kieran as in the words of Mark Lamar I can forgive but I can't forget or forgive <laughs> uh, but Worse than that, Kieran. I was I was in a pub this afternoon with my dear friend Mark Webster, having a quiet pint, setting the world to rights. And then an elderly chap detached himself from a, a table of other elderly chaps, even more elderly than us. Kieran it turned out his name was <laughs> turned out his name was Les, and he was eighty eight. And he he came over and he, he sat down and he said, "I I just wanted to tell you on behalf of all the other elderly chaps, I'm a big fan of yours and." Apparently, you you support Crystal Palace. I I support Charlton. My first game was in 1947. So had a lovely chat with Les um, about football in Southeast London. Uh, and then he asked if if Mark Webster could take a photograph of me and Les. And as he went, he shook my hand. He said, "It's been lovely to talk to you, Chris." And I said, uh, "My name's not Chris. <laughs> my name's not Kevin." And he went, "Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I I, I, I we I thought you were Chris Moyles."
1: <laughs> um,
0: Whereupon we're, mark webster laughed in the same way that you laughed and he went he said dennis dennis did say over there and dennis waved and dennis did say well he's come back from the jungle quickly hasn't he but <laughs> <laughs> it's, if, if, I, if i've been in a bad mood since the fsa awards kieran that really put the icing on the cake anyway welcome to the show everybody we we don't have to pretend to be nice because it's a, a year till the next award ceremonies.
1: Uh, how are you, Kieran? You're
0: okay. You fine?
1: I'm 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 very good. Yes, thank you very much. Yes, uh, it's uh, the Baroness has gone away for for four days. Oh, Lord. So, okay, so, so it's just just me and Finlay and his and his Squeaky Fox Arnold uh, in the house. So <laughs> yeah, we're we're having when, fun. When, when, You you keep telling yourself you're
0: having fun, Kieran. (laughs) Later in the show, we will be hearing from John Ledwich, who is head of sports turf and grounds at Leicester City, which in old money is head groundsman. Um, And I know I say this every week, Kieran, but it was generally one of the most interesting interviews we have done for a long time. It was fascinating, and even more so because it sort of came out of left field a little bit. I think we were both expecting some talk of pitchforks and some grumpiness about people on the pitch, but it was a really interesting interview about the economics and the finances of sports maintenance, sports ground maintenance. And so that's coming up. It's Newsday. Um, but before we get into news stories, Kieran, the World Cup is starting on Sunday. Probably the least looked forward to World Cup for a long time by many people. But we've had a... a Quite a lot of questions about the World Cup, which we thought we would answer as quickly as possible, Kieran, just in terms of the finances. (laughs) Just a heads up for for Kieran,
1: get a move on. Uh,
0: Well, no, a little bit. When I say I was in the pub for a quiet drink this afternoon, Kieran, it was quite a long, quiet drink. uh, but but I, these are these are questions that I think people, well, they are asking, I know they're asking, but I think it's worth just getting into them before we start the World Cup so people can have a bit more context. Because we've talked a lot, uh, everybody's talked a lot about the human rights record in, in Qatar, but that's brushed some of the financial questions under the carpet. So first of all, Kieran, of the questions we've been asked, how much does it cost to build these stadiums in Qatar Um, stadiums that didn't, of course, exist uh, 10 years ago because there is no football interest or infrastructure in the kingdom in the first place.
1: Right. Um, Well, if you go to the uh, briefing document, so I I went into the FIFA archives and what happens is that if you apply to host a World Cup, and Qatar did this with Japan, South Korea, Australia, uh, and the USA. So you you have to put forward a proposal. And, yeah. and the proposal at the time was that the stadiums, I think they were initially proposing to build 10 or 12, and it's now been reduced to eight. But the initial cost was $8 billion, Um. Sorry, the initial cost was four billion dollars, but it's now coming out around about eight billion because it, the the contest be, was approved in twenty ten. Since then, we've had uh, significant increases in material costs uh it doesn't matter what product you make it it all consists of uh you know material overhead and labor um i, I suspect sadly uh, in respect of many of the issues to do with the construction of the stadiums yeah. uh, the labor costs haven't gone up uh, for reasons which uh, you know are i think have been covered on many occasions um but as as well as the the stadiums themselves there were lots of indirect costs because um that there's only one airport effectively uh, in in Qatar so therefore that's needed to be significantly extended uh in order to allow uh, you know fa- the number of fans that they're expecting to to come into doha um they've had to build a a metro uh which is i think sort of a, yeah. i think quite a lot of it is driverless as well it's uh, yeah. a, it's a bit like the uh, the springfield monorail um <laughs> and uh, i just hope it's more successful than that um they've had to build new roads uh Doha International Port has been expanded. And as far as uh, accommodation is concerned, um, 55,000 additional rooms. I think, I think it's something like a, a 60 to 80 new hotels have been created. Now, I went on to, and this is, this is how serious I take it. I went on to construction news and hotel maintenance websites. Uh, um, and I think the it costs, on average, around about $300,000 per room. So if, if you put all of those costs together, and you know, depending upon which side of the fence you're on, these costs, well, they would have been incurred anyway, according to some people, or they are directly laid at the the foot of the, the World Cup. That comes to around about one hundred and ten billion to $120 billion. And, and to sort of put that into context... Um, the the average NHS bill for the whole of yeah. the UK, which is a population of more than sixty million people, compared to Qatar, which has I think around about three hundred thousand citizens, and then it's got an expat population which is probably about eight or nine times the size of that. Uh, the total NHS uh, bill is is around about one hundred and ten million sterling, so say one hundred and thirty million dollars. So so that's that's indicative of of the huge cost. Um, and, and it's certainly more than the costs of the, the most recent World Cups, which themselves have come in for criticism uh, in some countries, especially uh, in South Africa and Brazil. Um, they probably have come in for criticism in Russia, but the Putin government made sure that little mm-hmm. of that criticism was publicised. Uh, and, of course,
0: there are many people, Kieran, including us, who say that the stadium build cost needs to be extended after the World Cup, to include compensation for those people that have lost their life in building um, those stadiums, but uh, a subject on which FIFA and the government of Qatar are still suspiciously quiet. Uh, Private Eye pointed out this week, um, fascinating Private Eye, because nobody at Private Eye has any interest in football, mm. but they have a lot of interest in, in politics. Uh, they were talking about sponsors, people, you know, Coca-Cola, Visa, Adidas, Companies whose websites are front and centre on their policies on human rights and equalities, uh, but are still sponsoring
1: the World Cup. How much are sponsors spending on this World Cup, Kieran? Well, um, it's, it's going to be over a billion dollars in total. Uh, which is, which is a huge sum of money. If you, if you take a look at the, the FIFA accounts for 2018 and 2019, which, which I have done, um, in, in, 2018, it was $1.1 billion, uh, for, for the Russia World Cup. That dropped to 140 million in 2019. So that's, that, I think that's indicative of how much the sponsors are willing to pay in a World Cup year. Um, the, the senior sponsors the likes of adidas coca-cola hyundai and visa um they have signed multi tournament deals with uh with fifa so they would actually find it quite tricky to extricate themselves potentially from a deal for 2022 and then right, reinstate right. them for 2026 right. in in uh, its usa canada and mexico so um i think they'll they've they've bitten the bullet there if if we start to look at the adverts that these Companies are putting together. Um, I think they're very much highlighting the football and trying to distance themselves from the political side uh, yeah. of of what's happening. But you you can't do that. you know, janny you know, Infantino is has just moved to Qatar. You know, it, it's it, these things are inextricably linked. Um, you know, we're recording this on Sunday night, about half an hour before the show started. The the DFB, the, the German Football Association, said it would not be uh, it would not be voting for Gianni Infantino to be yeah. re elected as president because they felt uncomfortable with regards to uh, his stance in, in terms of uh, the much broader issues than football. Uh we're recording this on Wednesday night, Kewan, aren't we? Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, Yeah. I don't know what I don't what. what, The the Baroness has gone away for three days. I don't know what day of the week it is. Yeah, and
0: I was in the pub for most of the afternoon, so don't start playing that sort of game, Kieran. (laughs)
1: Um, And and apart from uh,
0: the money that certain FIFA members have made in their, shall we say, resting in their private accounts, Kieran, uh, how much will FIFA officially make from this World Cup? Because we're talking about record amounts, apparently, aren't we?
1: Yes. Um, it's estimated to be worth around about four point seven, perhaps $5 billion this year. And, and FIFA's a, a funny beast in the sense that it loses money three years out of every four. Um, and it is very reliant upon the the FIFA World Cup to provide all of the money, all of the profits. Um, and, and FIFA then distributes an awful lot of those profits um uh, to the individual members. So, you know, if, if you are the Cook Islands, if you are, um, you know, if, if you are Burma, if, if you are, uh, you know, countries which we don't uh, necessarily move much on the register because they're in the lower echelons of the FIFA World Rankings, um, you know, they do normally get, uh, you know, it might be a million pounds each or a million dollars each because FIFA, FIFA tend to work in dollars. Um, and, and that money does often go to some fantastically good causes i I, I was reading about one country where it, it managed to get uh, approval to join FIFA um and and they had 12 footballs in the country before um, before FIFA started offering support and and it can be transformational so the you know I think it's 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 right and proper to criticize those at the top of FIFA um, there are however some very good people in the organization who who want to spread that sense of community and love that, that we have for the game um, in, in as many countries as possible. So, uh, you know, whilst I'll quite happily say that, in my opinion, FIFA is a mafiosa organisation as far as uh, the, the way that uh, certain decisions are made, uh, there are many good people there doing many good things as well. Yeah, we've all
0: seen those American gangster films, Kieran, when there's one or two nice blokes on the edge of the mafia organisation who inevitably get killed halfway through before being able to do much in terms of benevolence. But there you are. Um, should England or Wales win the World Cup, Kieran? How much prize money are they looking at?
1: Well, um, the, the total prize money pot is $440 million. The winners will get... Um, a, it, it's that You get $2.5 uh, up front for, for turning up. So so in order, you know, because we've got 32 countries, FIFA gives this two and a half million before the tournament starts to allow countries to organise, um, you know, administrative issues, hotels, flights, training facilities, and so on. Um, uh, but the winners will get on top of that, they'll get around about $42 million, well, yeah, it's about 35, 36 million quid. Um, uh, just getting into the group stages is, is worth, I think, about another 10 million. So it, it is a lucrative cup. Competition, um, as well as the uh, the, the individual nations, um, the clubs who are effectively loaning their employees for a month, they're sharing three hundred and ten thousand, sorry, three hundred and ten million dollars. So that works out as about oh. eight and a half thousand per player per day, which. Isn't huge by by Premier League standards, but if you are if you're playing in uh, in some of the other continents, it, it's it's a substantial amount of money. Um, and, and to put this again into context, the prize money for the uh, the FIFA World Cup for the men four hundred and forty million dollars. The prize money for the women in the most recent World Cup was just thirty. So that's less than the men's team is going to that the men's winners are going to get was spread amongst all of the participants mm. in the women's World Cup. Uh, which is shameful, of course.
0: And finally, the question I think uh, our listeners will most relate to, there's been a brilliant documentary on Channel 4 in the last couple of weeks about Italia 90, Mm. uh, where we saw the experience of uh, England fans following England uh, around uh, Italy and Sardinia in that World Cup, most of whom were staying in ramshackle campgrounds. an experience that will be shared by England and Wales fans during this World Cup. How much is it going to cost England and Wales fans to, to support their team in Qatar for this World Cup?
1: Well, um, if we go back to the 1966 World Cup, um, you could have watched England play every single match, including the final, for a grand total of £2.62. and pence. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I, I, I sort of I went through. So I found some old pictures of tickets, uh, ticket stubs, and added everything together. Um, now, admittedly, the the average wage there was was seventeen pounds and three shillings. Uh, and you and I are both old enough to, to remember what a shilling was. So that's that's fifteen pence. Um, but in twenty twenty two, if you if England or Wales get to the final. Instead of two pounds sixty-two, the cheapest amount that it will cost you is one thousand two hundred and ninety-five pounds and sixty-seven pence wow. for your tickets. You've then got flights. Um, uh, uh, the Qatar only has one effectively domestic airport. Um, flights are not cheap. It's, it's actually cheaper to fly to Dubai and then. Yeah. Effectively, you know, go across by land or some other method, or even getting a sort of more of a, a local flight um, direct to uh, to Doha. Um, accommodation, what I'm hearing, is expensive. Um, there are cruise ships being effectively used as hotels, and uh, we found out earlier today, and it's just as well you weren't having a long session with Mark Webster in Doha. Um, a 500 milliliter. Uh, beer will cost you eleven pounds and sixty pence, and uh, I believe that's less than a pint. So um, it works out as around about thirteen pounds a pint uh, for beer. Um, so it's it's going to be a very expensive experience uh, for fans. Yeah, you know, I've I've been to a few World Cups, some of the greatest experiences of my life, uh, but even even these prices you know, would, mm. would make me balk. And already we've seen, Kieran,
0: the England team arrived uh, yesterday afternoon to be met by an enthusiastic group of England supporters who it's claimed, many of whom are Doha locals who were paid to meet them and be enthusiastic because there's several people claiming, several news sources claiming, the same people turned up to meet each team and pretended to be fans of each other. it's I'll still be watching the football, Kieran, but it's it's with a sense of unease. But... Uh, One other thing on the World Cup before we move on to this week's domestic news stories, the Royal Life Saving Society UK have been in touch with us to ask if we can highlight their Don't Drink and Drown campaign, which is running during the tournament. It's focused on making sure fans stay safe when drinking alcohol around water. And You can go to rlss.org.uk for more information and please make sure you stay safe during this World Cup. When you're celebrating or commiserating, um, news now, Kieran. Um, breaking news, which you informed me because it didn't reach the pub I was in this afternoon, for Coventry City fans.
1: Yes, so so this is a story which which has broken on on Wednesday night. I've, I've now established what day of the week it is, <laughs> um, and um, Coventry City has a new owner. So right. the yes, I think this it's it's a local businessman called, I think his name's Doug King, um, Sisu, who were the, the very strange owners, uh, you know, on, on an offshore hedge fund um, that, that initially I think everybody in Coventry really hated. And and then to a certain extent, a bit like the Venkis at, at Blackburn, um, they realised that Sisu were actually reasonably good in the sense that they underwrote the losses that were being incurred at Cov. Um, so, yet yeah, there is a new uh, local owner. Um, he is, by all accounts, going to try to work in conjunction with the owners of the uh, of the arena uh, of the Coventry Building Society Arena. I think it is now officially known known as, uh, with a view to buying the stadium. And I think that's something which is right and proper. Yeah, we've said on so many occasions that the separation of football club from football stadium often ends in tears and uh, you know it certainly happened to to my club at Brighton we ended up playing at Priestfield I know that you at Palace had have had history uh, in terms of you know the, the loss of the ground in terms of being owned by the club um, and you you talk to people at other clubs and it's 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 it happens too often so if we can get Coventry and the stadium and a local owner all together then uh, I think that would be good news for all concerned
0: at this, this is a story sort of close to your heart by two degrees of separation. That those Chelsea fans unhappy with Graham Potter's uh, stewardship of the team, shall we say, may be distracted by some news coming out from the owner.
1: Yes, um, there, there is no doubt that the uh, the Bowley stroke Clearlake uh ownership group uh and yeah you know, i i have been very vocal in my dislike of all things Todd Bowley yeah uh for for some reasons which are which are linked to him uh, he's, he's just taken our uh, head of recruitment uh, uh in the in the last 24 hours to add to everything else they're looking for a new stadium uh, they, they might also move to the fucking amex yeah, given what he has done, <laughs> but
2: but if you're not going to do that,
1: Um there is talk of of, of two options. First of all, uh, there is a plot of land next to Stamford Bridge itself, uh which is about one and a half acres, and that that would potentially allow for. Um, expansion of Stamford Bridge. It's only got what you know, 41,000 capacity. Stadium. Manchester United is what 74. The yeah, you know, there's talk about United going for 85 to to 90. Liverpool is moving up to 61. Uh, you know, Chelsea is uh, Chelsea has the fourth biggest stadium in London. You know, so let alone the UK. Mm. Um, so that would allow for some increase in capacity. I think there's two issues. You'll probably only get to say 47,000. So you still be the fourth largest stadium in London. And whether you'll succeed, given that some of the neighbours are a rich and b quite stroppy uh, when it mm. comes to what they consider to be their light. Uh, and, and you know Chelsea have had huge issues historically uh, in dealing with uh, any changes to the ground. So I think that will be a quite challenge. This is in respect of Earl's Court. Um, it's a a big footprint. Uh, it would be able to uh, take a 60,000 capacity stadium, but, but the site, which was sold in 2019, was sold for £425 million. Um, I suspect Chelsea would be looking to um yeah they've already got a hotel uh, at at Chelsea's Stamford Bridge. I think they would be looking to do more than just build a stadium there because it simply wouldn't be cost effective um at these type of prices. But uh the the new owners are are looking at all possibilities and eventualities. Um now there's there's one thing that they might not be aware of because um yeah they, they didn't, by all accounts, realise that four four two 4 meant that you had 10 players outfield and a goalkeeper. And Todd Bowley seems to think that Chelsea should have been playing four four three. 4 3 That Chelsea pitch owners own the name of Chelsea yeah. Football Club, which yeah. um, you know, uh, Ken Bates is a, is a controversial uh, uh, soul. Um, and there is many of the things that he has done, which, which I look on uh, uh, more in Sorrow and Anger than Joy, but one of the best things he did was dividing uh, Chelsea's pitch into effectively you know, one square metre or one square yard spots and, and selling them off to individuals. And you're not allowed to, I think you're not allowed to own more than 10. So this means that no one person can, A, um, take over the, the effectively the freehold, but also Chelsea pitch owners own Chelsea Football Club the name. So if there is a move from Stamford Bridge to Earl's Court, then the new owners of Chelsea FC PLC, in effect, they will have to persuade Chelsea pitch owners that it's in the best interests of the club. And and without that, they they won't be able to play under the name.
0: uh, Earl's Court is in West London, Kieran, which is as alien to me as North London East London, south-west London, <laughs> most of <laughs> most of, London. But uh, I know the part of town that they're thinking about, I mean, there's a lot of work would have to be done there in terms mm. of access for a for, for start-off, in terms of, I mean, there are tube stations around, but there's it's narrow roads around there. I mean, that's a long-term, very expensive project to only add five, six, seven thousand 7,000 to the capacity, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no way that it's going to work as, as a, as a build of a stadium and nothing else. It's, yeah. it's got to be as part of a retail, office, uh, store, hotel development. Uh, and under those circumstances, you might start to get a return on your investment. But as a football club, it simply wouldn't work.
0: See, and that's why we do this podcast because we're talking about return on your investment rather than as a football club. Um- very good swearing there, by the way, Kieran. I, if anybody was going to swear on this pod, I would have predicted it was me. But you've 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 launched a boil. Uh, I was going to say pricked a boil there, Kieran. But in true carry on style, that would have lent to, to <laughs> um, it's whatever you think about the Newcastle takeover. It's been a joyous season for Newcastle fans on the pitch. They are playing some very very good football. Eddie Howe is turning into a better manager than I thought he would do, uh, and the news is only getting better for them this week, isn't it?
1: Yes. Uh, the the new owners, uh, they announced last week that they are putting a further £70 million worth of shares into the football club. Um, the The advantage of shares, I think, in terms of the sustainability of the club is that if you issue shares to somebody – you never have to go and repay that money, so therefore, it's it's far more beneficial to a club than loans. Um, it will also count, and an element of that will count uh, it uh, uh, towards FFP, especially if the money is spent on infrastructure. Um, and this is one area uh, in which uh, Mike Ashley's spending was notoriously tight. Um, yeah. I, I I went into the I, I looked at. All of the accounts of all of the the Premier League clubs that we presently have, um, and if we if we start when Mike Ashley first acquired um, Newcastle United, for every one hundred pounds that was put in on average into infrastructure spend across all of the other clubs um, in in the Premier League, um, Mike Ashley uh, put in four pounds eighty four, which is. Oh. Ludicrous, you know. So if, well, even if you have yeah. got clubs like you know, Southampton or, or or Leicester or or, or, you know, or Fulham, you know, um, you know, he's putting in less than a twentieth of what the average other club owner was putting in. Um, and you know, you, you talk to Newcastle fans, and you know, they say, "Well, there's not been, you know, there's not been a fresh lick of paint. There's there's dead pigeons on the on the top of the stands. You know, it, it's it just sounded." Uh, horrendous, and uh, you know, I, I've said that the one good thing that Mike Ashley did was that he left a legacy of a, uh, a club which financially was, you know, washed its own face, and therefore has given the new owners the capacity to, to spend without having to worry about FFP. But uh, he did this on the back of of not spending a dime um, on the ground, the training facilities. Yeah, everything to do with which which can potentially improve the quality of the product on the pitch and the enjoyment of the people that go there. Mm.
0: Uh, this next story, Kieran, is very interesting because in the last three weeks, Yorkshire seems to have been awash with rumour because we had many, many uh, tweets, emails, um, whatever the other social media things are, um, from Leeds fans about – uh, 49ers enterprises the shareholders and what their ambitions were for the club and this week we seem to have had an answer to
1: that question yes so so this was uh, i think an article picked up in the times um the 49ers enterprises and and we we had padrick um from 49ers enterprises on the show yeah. about a year ago and he was he was very engaging uh and very uh, enthusiastic about yep. Leeds United which which, yeah, which we acknowledge is a uh, is is a is a very big football club with Huge. lots of fans in lots of different countries yep. um uh, Andrea Radrizani bought Leeds United for around about 45 million pounds Um, And if this article is correct, uh, 49ers Enterprises, which is slightly different, it is the investment arm rather than the the 49ers uh, gridiron team, has an option to buy in January 2024 for $475 But there's now talk of bringing that forward. So they presently own 44% of the club. Um, Once they get beyond 50%, that gives them control that allows them to to dictate as far as decisions are concerned um so if that is brought forward then yeah in terms of the key decisions such as setting a playing budget potentially increasing the size of Elland Road itself, which is uh you know Leeds wants to be needs to keep up with with everybody else um and um uh, and you know then then there's got the playing side of things um uh, that, that noise in the background is uh, finley's i think Finley's just found a wine gum down the side <laughs> of the sofa and he is <laughs> desperately trying to to get it out from the cushion um this, this, this is this is this is the life of the world's dullest man um well, I, thought you,
0: I, I thought you were going to say wine bottle but the baroness is away so that was That's unlikely right. so <laughs> <laughs> Finley, tell, don't let Finley have wine gums. They're not good for dogs' teeth. they're, oh, yeah, not, they're not good for anybody's teeth. To
1: be fair, oh,
0: yeah, Arnold.
1: Also, Arnold. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, if if this is brought forward, then I, I think it would give a degree of certainty uh, with regards to the the future ownership of Leeds. Um, yeah, it would be a a, a nice return on the investment as far as uh, ragazzani is concerned who who has spent when necessary to to take Leeds from the championship to the premier league um and i think if you listen to leeds fans um you know, their argument now is right we are in the premier league what next you know, we, we're uh, you know, i think if if you and i are honest kevin you know, much as we we've got as far as we can go um you know, a, a good cup run that would be great but I think Leeds have probably got a different type of ambition um, because I think there is a greater expectation. You know, for, uh, for my mm. view is is for Brighton to be one of the the top twenty clubs in the country uh, is is absolutely brilliant. Um, I can't see us being top six. Uh, but we're, we're not doing too bad as far as well, the, the Premier League is yeah. doing this season.
0: Yeah, and if if we'd beaten Forest on Saturday rather than abjectly giving up, we would be ahead of you and. Mm talking about the Europa League. Um, I, I may owe an apology to the Football Supporters Association. At, at our, our distraction about Finley looking for a wine gum down the back of the settee may be more of an indication why we didn't win the award rather than their voting system. <laughs> um, it, it might be good news. For I mean, If Leeds United are wholly owned by an American company, uh, it's not good news for those conspiracy theorists who say that uh, the Americans are trying to take over the Premier League and vote for a non relegation Premier League, but it might be good news for Jesse Marsh because who is it seems always only one game away from being sacked by Leeds United. So maybe American owners would be more sympathetic towards him.
1: Um, p- potentially, yeah, the the, the the ideologies could could line up. You know, he he, yeah, it's a terrible thing. He speaks their language. You know, yeah, we, we there is still a transatlantic gap, as we're fully aware. Um, so, so that that could be beneficial for him. Um, we, we'll have to wait and see. But uh, you know, Le- Leeds is is one of those clubs where if you, if you lose three or four matches, um, you you are in danger. Uh, whereas at Brighton, uh, yeah, under Graham Potter last season, we won three matches in twenty five, and, and he wasn't in danger of the sack. Um, whereas if he Tries doing that at Chelsea. Um,
0: Well, uh, let 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 it go now, Kieran. I can't. I can't get 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 Finley to find you a nice soothing non-alcoholic wine gum down the back of the sofa for you. It feels, Kieran, like this next story. Is well travelled ground mm. because it involves uh, the words Manchester City, crypto partner, and investigated.
1: Yes, yes. So, so Manchester City did have a partner which came and went quite quickly a few months ago, um, but this is their regional betting partner in Asia called Eight X Bet, or it could be Eight Times Bet. I, I don't know. And I don't particularly <laughs> care. <laughs> um, uh, and uh there's there's a really good uh Norwegian website um called Josimar and they do fantastic investigative work um and then this has been picked up by Nick Harris at the Mail on Sunday as well um this this company eight times bet um it, it's not as it seems you know, in terms of uh its staff uh, you know they if, if you take a look at the photographs of the people in charge, they're actually stock photos. Yeah, you know, They're right. not the, these people involved.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. If you then try to do a bit of background checking through uh, the likes of LinkedIn, which is a good way of trying to gauge the number of employees an organization has, some of the people that claim to be work or that or, eight times bet seem to think are working for them turn out to be not quite working for them. Um, there is... A tenuous link with Teddy Sheringham, who is the brand ambassador, um, and and this isn't a criticism of Teddy Sheringham. You know, he's he's just phoning in for a check, um, and 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 there's I've got no, no no issue with that whatsoever because lots of players and ex players they will turn up you know, at, at, at the at the drop of a hat for a, a potential sponsor and a quick payday. Um, but um, what eight times bet are actually doing is no. It makes no sense whatsoever. Um, but remember, this comes you know, a week after Manchester City reported the highest commercial income of yeah. any club in the history of the Premier League. Um, so I, I would say yeah, two things. A, if you are Manchester City and you want to give your critics an opportunity to raise eyebrows and to point fingers at your commercial income, this is how to do it because it's, it, it just it, it fails the smell test. And secondly, yeah, Manchester City, in my view, are actually one of the most professional clubs in many aspects of, of the way that they conduct themselves. And, and I hear this from other parties as well. You do your due diligence. You do yeah. your homework. Um, and perhaps we need an independent regulator of football <laughs> to do that homework in respect of all commercial deals, because if individual Premier League clubs cannot look after themselves, if if they are blinded by the cheque, then we need somebody to look after them.
0: Yeah. Did you bump into your potential independent financial regulator for football at the uh, FSA Awards the other night, Kieran? I, I, I did meet up with uh, with Tracy Crouch, yes. Uh, did word you? for exchange, yes. Yeah, did you? Did you tell her that the Baroness is away for four days? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> it's it's an interesting one, Kira, because uh, I mean, first of all, uh, I, I presume law would have to be passed to make clubs uh, show these things to an independent regular. I mean, they're not going to be happy. Uh, you know, clubs like Man City, Man United, Liverpool won't be particularly happy if they have to run business deals past an independent regulator. But we talk a lot about Man City being a force for good in the east hmm. of the city, which they have been without any doubt at all. They have really regenerated uh, a previously run-down part of the city. And we talk a lot about them being a professional, intelligent football club. And yet, once every three months, we seem to have a, a, a story where City have failed to look into a, a new
1: partner. Yeah, it's 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 sloppy. Um, yeah, you know, and and you are as yeah, just as in football, you're as good or bad as your last result. Well, mm. when it comes to being a a senior professional, um, you're as good or as bad as your last deal. And this this does appear that, that City have either dropped the ball or they simply don't care. And, and yet, neither of which looks good. Yeah, uh, we started our news
0: stories with. Uh, talk of a new stadium build and the next story is probably the second highest profile team in Man City's group also looking to build a new stadium
1: yes um so this is the uh this is New York City and they are proposing a 25,000 capacity stadium but uh sort of going back to what we we said in respect of Chelsea this is clearly somebody that is thinking more outside the box or more in the sense of the football ground being part of a much broader development. So um, it will be a 25,000-seater capacity stadium, but there will also be a 250-room hotel, 2,500 units of housing. So you know the the football club, New York City, is going to make money 365 days a year out of the housing project, out of the hotel, and um, it, it does it, it plays into what I think is very much the American sports business model, which is which is real estate with with sport operating at the anchor point. So you know we, we, we see this I, I think increasingly as as football goes forwards. Um, you know, football's not sustainable, and and we've said this all along. Yeah, you know, what what other business do you know is closed three hundred and thirty days a year? Yeah, you know, yeah. It, it's 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 absolutely bonkers. Um, so I, th- I think you know, 20, you might say, well, 25,000 thousand's not that many, but. 25,000 is enough you know if 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 that's the the level of interest um and if they build the stadium in the right way then then you do it in a modular approach which uh, you know allows for easy extension if if necessary in due course depending upon the level of interest um so i think it is it is a sign that uh, the city football group is becoming as much of a real estate organisation and is picked up from the mistakes that it has made in other parts of the world um, to, to go forwards as a as this multi club ownership of football, which you know from from the point of view and I is, is as far away from football in our love of the game as can be, but it 's a business now
0: it 's a long time since i 've been to New York, Kieran, and my knowledge of New York geography is sketchy as you would imagine but it would seem to me that if it's difficult to find space in london to build a stadium it's even more difficult in new york isn't it
1: um y- yes it is uh, but this this is a a site which which has been approved um and uh you know the the, the new york state is is much bigger um but you know my my knowledge is uh, pretty crap but it's it's got subway transport into Queens, um, and it's you've got you know, the other things not too far away, such as Flushing Meadow and the Yankees and so on. So I think there are some, you know, there are some other sporting activities not too far away.
0: Well, we're coming to the end of our news stories, Kieran, um, but I think it's a sign that our producer is a Man United fan that he's tucked the next two right near the end. Um the first one is that Man United clearly not reading the room have decided to launch their own set of NFTs.
1: Yes so uh for people not familiar uh, an NFT is a non-fungible token. Um I think they are selling for 30 pounds a piece. Um wow. although they I think they're giving away the first drop I think is the word free. Yep. Um yep. so a non-fungible token um it, it's a bit like uh for those of you that have seen the the correct episode of The Simpsons, it's a bit like itchy and scratchy dollars. Um <laughs> you, you can only use them to uh you can only use them to, to buy uh, effectively Manchester United sanctioned product stroke experiences. Um but you've got to give sterling or dollars or whatever other currency to to buy them. So so Liverpool uh tried this a few months ago. And ninety percent of them didn't sell yeah. um Manchester United, as you would expect them to say is this is different um what what are the benefits and th- and then you go into um crypto bingo and and you know there's talk of drops and equity and engagement and all of these vague terms um and experiences that you couldn't get elsewhere well you, know, you, you can do that because you know, you and I are old enough to remember when clubs would have raffles, and you know and the first prize was. Uh, you, you get a chance to go and watch, uh, you know, the, 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 players at a training session and, uh, and, or you, you get a chance to be a ball boy for a day. And, and these are the, the types of things which are, are likely to be on offer, uh, along with, you know, signed shirts. Well, again, clubs have been flogging signed, signed shirts as prizes for, for various activities year in, year out. So I, I don't see what the new rewards are, which are so unique that you need to create your own currency to do so. Um, From Manchester United's point of view, um, they are conscious that they've got fans all around the world those fans have got money, and Manchester United's owners, the Glazers, would like more of the money. and let, And they'll say, "Well, twenty percent of the the proceeds is going to the Manchester United Foundation." What are they trying to do? It's the classic. They're looking for normalisation. They're looking for legitimacy. They're looking for linking a football club to what ultimately is an unregulated, highly volatile in terms of value. And they say, "Well, it's these things, the, these tokens, they're not investments." Well, okay, but they don't. They don't go out of their way to say that they're not investments. Uh, you've had your own experiences at Palace. If we take a look at other yep. clubs as well, um, you know, fans are rightly sceptical of them. Um, we've just seen one of the biggest crypto uh, organisations on the planet go bust in the course of the last seven days. Um, I think it's a sign of the contempt that football club owners have for football fans, that they continue to peddle this nonsense um, to to people who are not always uh, financially uh, independent or aware uh, and are, are ripe for the taking. Yeah, I, I think
0: I'm right in saying, and I hope so, because I'm proud of this. I think of all the Premier League clubs that have introduced Socios, Palace has been the lowest take-up, been a huge kickback against them. Um this is probably not the time to mention this, Kieran, in terms of signed shirts. And I won't mention which club it is, but it's a high-profile Premier League club that we have mentioned on the pod. But once uh, doing some filming at said club, I walked into the press office to discover the press officer uh, merrily signing 20, 25 shirts with all the players' names. Because um, uh, as she explained, they didn't have time to actually sign them themselves. Mm. And she was quite good at copying the signatures. Um, so, whether I, I hope this is not a bad news for twenty twenty five <coughs> Chelsea fans out there who, who may have who may have a framed shirt in their living room, <laughs> just check the signatures to make sure they, they look different. <laughs> so, um, now Kieran, if I was a, a producer of a, a podcast or indeed a, a news program, I might have started with this story because. Possibly it's the biggest one of the week, but, you know, producer guy, being a Man United fan, has basically written the words, Cristiano Ronaldo, yada yada yada, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but a huge interview with Piers Morgan, Cristiano Ronaldo doing what football players hate other players doing and spilling the beans on backstage stories and how unhappy he is. Could this affect his contract with United? I know it's a... Uh probably a question for our in-house lawyer, Chris DeMarco, but we haven't got three grand at the moment. So <laughs> I mean it's a huge story, Kieran, and it's it's clearly he won't play for United again, you imagine. But financially, how is this gonna play out?
1: Well, I, I have been in contact with one of our other legal chums, uh, who has spoken to uh the employment law uh colleagues that he has. Right. Um And he said it would be difficult in all probability to dismiss Cristiano Ronaldo in respect of gross misconduct. Um, Having said that, uh, it's fairly standard in a Premier League contract that uh, if you are to have an interview with a journalist, then then the club has to be given notice. So it could be that the club has not been given notice, in, in which case, they would have some grounds for some form of sanction. Now that would normally be in the form of a fine, yeah, a week's pay, two weeks' pay. You you used to work in HR, you know, you you'll be aware of of contract law and and so on. Um, so the the trouble is, uh you know, you, you have to have good faith towards your employer. So yeah, most people at some point in their Career are fairly cheesed off with the way that they're being treated at work, mm. but what you don't do is, is you don't put it out on social media. You, you you keep it to yourself. You 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 simmer for a while, and either it goes away or you go away. You know that. Um, so he could be invoked to dismiss is the is the words that I've received, but he could probably counterclaim uh, the club. Well, doesn 't want to be dragged through the courts because that will be a distraction um i I would also say you know let let's take the soap opera soap opera away we, we are We are dealing with a father who lost his child less than six months ago fair and, point. yeah you know, yeah i i couldn't point. i couldn't give a damn about the bitchiness of all this yeah. um he is still a dad, and you know whether you like him or dislike him as a footballer, or as a person from what you 've read in the press. You and I are both dads, you know many of the listeners would be in exactly the same position i i don 't know what it 's like to have lost a child, but I would imagine that my head would be all over the place. I would be going through a range of emotions, mm. from guilt to despair, and so on, and frankly, there would be times when I would say things where i couldn't give a damn, who heard about it, yeah, who it was about, and so on and I think this is 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 a much um, a broader issue as well now i also got in contact with um an agent um with regards to this and i said well you know how how would you deal with this if one of your representatives was was in such a position um and you know the agent said to me uh it's it, clearly the relationship has broken down i would say to the client look you know we're not trying to engineer an exit route but it's clear that There is little benefit in this relationship continuing. Let's try and arrange something which works for all parties. Now, it's going to cost Manchester United, if Cristiano Ronaldo sits out the rest of his contract, it's going to cost them somewhere in the region of 10 to 12 million pounds uh, until the 30th of June 2023. They'd rather have that money themselves. So, you know, what can they do? He might be able to find somewhere else in Europe. If so, let him go on a free transfer. You know that they they didn't pay very much to get him from uh, Juventus in the first place. Um, you know he's Ronaldo's been made a pariah uh, in all of this, um, and yeah, you know, I'm I'm not sympathetic to some of the things that he said. He, he's he's actually been used by Piers Moron, uh, in my view, uh, yeah. to to uh, support a show which has – which is close to zero uh, viewers. Uh, So I I do – his advisors will have said, yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of politics in all of this. um, But I think we are also dealing with a human being as well as a soap opera. Do you
0: know what, Kieran? i I'm proud of you for saying that because it it – Uh, in the the fuss, the tabloid fuss, I'd forgotten about Ronaldo's loss. Um, And I have to say as well that many people in football that I've spoken to say that Cristiano Ronaldo is a very pleasant, very approachable man in personal circumstances. So I'm really pleased that you said that. Um, Two more stories before our interview. Um... And they're from different ends of the financial scale. Yeah. I I'm afraid the drums are beating around South End United, aren't they, Q, and it's 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 getting louder.
1: Yes. Um, this is this is this is terrible news. This is this is horrible yeah. stuff. Um yeah. this is South End United's youth team haven't been given their October pay packets. You know, yeah, we're recording this on the on the 16th of November. Um it's it's not right and proper the the owner Ron Martin uh, his aim is to sell Roots Hall to move the club to uh, a new ground. there's no issue with that. He potentially is going to become very wealthy on the back of this.'ve um, I've been contacted by by somebody quite senior at South End and the stories which I've heard are that um, you know we've got members of staff who are effectively, Paying for the coaches for yeah. away trips, they're paying for the bibs, they're they're paying for the footballs. Such is the state of the club at present, and it's it's being done on the goodwill of of members of staff who are in slightly better position than than those who are in the youth team. Who who let's face it, you know, to be in a a national league team youth team player, you're not going to be on big money, but. Yeah. You still got your rent to pay. You've still got to go and heat. You still might, you know, a lot of them be living with their with their with their families who who will themselves be reliant. Or, you know, because so we're in the winter and we are going through. It's going to be the worst winter in living memory in terms of social deprivation. People having to make horrible decisions in terms of heat or eat. Um, so the owner is is not a poor person. Uh, they. They could have organized that the wages were paid quicker. Um and I, and I think it reflects poorly on them. Um and uh it's it's it it really grinds my gears when the people at the bottom of the food chain are being exploited like this. Yeah, we've seen
0: a lot of social media activity and personal protests from South End fans this week. Uh, we would love to hear from some of those if they want to get in touch. We'd also like to hear from Southend United if they'd like to get in touch. I suspect there's one group more likely to to do that than the other. Um, I, I almost I'm almost reluctant to to s- mention this next news story, Kieran, because it's a similar story, but it involves somebody who probably didn't notice.
1: Yes, uh, this is uh, Kylian Mbappe who uh, was not paid his September wage packet um, on time. Um, and the reason why, it, it, hey, yeah, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter who you are. Yeah, if you sign a contract of employment, you expect to be paid on, on the payday. Um, but I think what, what is uh, making him uh, extra unhappy, um, given that he, he signed a new contract, remember, um, over the course of the summer with uh, with PSG, is that Neymar and Messi were paid their full salaries, yeah. he wasn't. Now, is this a case of the club has got a bit of a cash crisis and is thinking, well, who's the softest touch in relation to all this? It's our local French lad, Kylian Mbappe, so therefore we won't pay him, but we don't want uh, the, the overseas players uh, who you know represent Brazil and Argentina to go unpaid because they're more likely to kick up more of a fuss. Um, I think the money has now been paid, but it, it, it creates a sour taste in the mouth, especially if you are in, you know, if, if you're owned by the the Qatari investment fund. Um, they're, they're, they're not sure of the readies and uh, the, the excuse by the club. Sometimes this happens. Well, if if you if you are a multi million pound organisation, it shouldn't happen. And if you're, mm. you know, and and the excuse which is given is is unprofessional in the extreme.
0: Yeah, it's hard to feel as much sympathy for Gillian Mbappé as it is for South End United's youth team. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Interview time, Kieran. And if there's a group of people at a football club that are almost as visible as the players, it's the ground staff. We see them week in, week out, and we know nothing about them. So we decided to talk to one of them, John Ledridge, who's Head of Sports, Turf and Grounds, at Leicester City. And I have to say, it's one of the most interesting interviews we've done for a long time. John, thank you very much for joining us. You must be a very happy man at the moment. You've got five whole weeks of no one running up and down your pitch at the King Power.
2: Yeah, it's um, it's really, really strange for us at the minute. Um, it's it's been a unique year already, and it's uh, we're going into a period of time where, obviously, the first team have got a little bit of time off now, but uh, they will be back. Um, but you know, equally, at the, the new training round, we've still got our academy programs running. Um, so we are a seven-day-a-week operation up at the new training round anyway. But and the King Power's got a couple of the women's games on them still to come. Um, but it's definitely, definitely a lot quieter than we've ever known. It's almost like a pre-season all over again. Uh, Just for a bit of context, John, firstly, tell us a little bit about yourself and then about your role across Leicester City. Yeah, well, I mean, I started this this job, really. I got into it when I was 13 years old. Um, I wanted to be a footballer desperately, like lots of young boys and girls do up and down the country. But unfortunately, I was sort of morbidly obese as a teenager. So I quickly put paid to that dream. And, um, and it, it's as simple as I, I really wanted to get on the pitch at uh, my beloved Coventry City Football Club at Highfield Road, as it was back then. Um, growing up at the back of the West Terrace, um, I was a big fan. And I sort of said to my dad, how do I get on the pitch, dad? And he said to me, he said, just write a letter to the groundsman. And I'll be perfectly honest with you, I did not know what a groundsman was. Didn't have a clue oh, well. what they did, but I thought if it got me on the pitch, then I'm happy with that. Um, so I did that and he, he invited me up for a summer. And then, you know, I it's a bit cliche, but the rest is history. I literally fell in love with the work. I fell in love with the thought of being in football every day um, and, you know, worked my way through the ranks at Coventry City, left to go to Aston Villa for a period of time and then came back to Coventry City when I was 23 as sort of like the headman." at the stadium and across the other two sites we had. Um, Had four great years of really cutting my teeth with Olympics and concerts at the stadium and various things around the training ground, nearly gone into administration. Um, And then the opportunity came up at Leicester. Um, That was nine years ago this January. Um, And, you know, as you can see, well, everyone can see that you know, watches football, the trajectory of the club has just been phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And um, I joined when we were, top of the championship in that January and we got promoted in the May Um, and then since then we've just sort of built and built and the infrastructure's just grown and my team here has gone from six members of staff, uh, two sites to uh, you know 52 staff now managing three sites and also having a hand in uh, across um, OH Leuven as well which is our Belgian club. Um, We have played more of an advisory role there now than I did four years ago when I sort of was thrust into building the department out there and um, we also have a bit of an advisory role for our owners to polo farms in london which you know huge um in comparison to (laughs) a training ground so yeah it's it's a mad role obviously sports stuff academy's come on and i'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that but um yeah it's diverse it keeps me on my toes and i'm still in love with what i do which is i know i'm very fortunate very very fortunate
0: uh, you mentioned a couple of things there, John. I, I wasn't planning to answer, but I'm going to have to pick up on. Uh, first of all, we we all wanted to spend time on the pitch as teenagers, and basically, what we used to do was go on the pitch. Uh, the, <laughs> we were we weren't meant to be on there, but we used to go on there on a regular basis. And you, you casually mentioned that you were head groundsman at Coventry when you were 23. You, you,
2: I think you're still the youngest ever head groundsman, aren't you, in the in English football? I think I was at the time. Yeah, I think. Um... At twenty-three I was I was definitely at that time the youngest in the football league. Um I, I genuinely couldn't tell you if I am now. Like uh, you know, I am thirty-seven years old now, even though I feel twenty-one. Um but uh, yeah, I think there's you know, the good thing is is there is some young talent coming through the industry, which is great. There's not enough at, at this point in time, but there are some young lads coming through and you know, I'm happy if they take that crown away, um if it still exists. But yeah, I was I was young and I was uh I would say I, was, I wasn't i was naive, but I was ready for a challenge when I joined Coventry at that point. Now, I wasn't
0: going to mention that. I believe Leicester also have a, a golf course or half a golf course that you look after. But then you you seem to mention, I I'm still taking this in, that you look after some polo pitches as well. Is that, did you say polo?
2: Yeah, horse polo. Our owners um, have got two farms in London. Um, and just to put it into context, one polo field, as they call them, is the equivalent of five football pitches in sort of length and width. Wow. Um so, so yeah, they're huge. Obviously these horses need a big expanse to run. Um and uh we've sort of we've been put down there more as the Sports Tech Academy, helping and advising um on sort of seems to land on my doorstep. Anything that's green um seems to come <laughs> past my door. <laughs> so uh it's uh, yeah, so it's it's took us in a few places that i never thought i would be in but you know i say it's sort of like a high level advisory role it's i'm not down there cutting the pitches they've got a, a team down there which are brilliant and we just help and advise and support where we can um just to keep the sort of quality and under wraps so yeah it's um it's interesting it sure is interesting obviously john this is a, a real layman's question but
0: are there, are there transferable skills between a polo farm and a football pitch and a, and a golf course the greens for example
2: yeah absolutely there's loads of transferable bits you know and the theory behind what we do and the science behind what we do is, is very similar um, but what you'll find across all those different disciplines is is that the construction of the fields or the pitches or the golf course tends to be a bit different you know in football especially in professional football nowadays um, there's so much consistency across playing surfaces um, you know gone are the days of, of mud bass um, but you'll find a golf course will have indigenous fairways which is you know the native soil then you'll have constructed greens which are exactly the same construction as a football pitch um and just a variety of different methods but a lot of it is transferable and polo is very similar your polo are sort of starting to make strides excuse the pun into um into being more consistent and you know that's where we were brought in to try and help polo evolve if you want to call it that we know with the testing that we do at the football club trying to transfer some of that down to polo and look into how that affects the the horses which are really valuable assets to the owners and to the riders um so yeah there's lots of transferable bits but ultimately we do Cut grass, you know that is a, a big core skill that all of us have to have. Um, but uh, there's a lot more science behind it. Um, maybe a bit more science than your listeners would want to hear. But yeah, it's, um, it's you can go down some rabbit holes. We've even got a doctor of sports turf uh, within the sports turf academy and within the team. So yeah, that shows how far you can go from an academic point of view in this uh, area. I, I, you're just, all my notes are going out the window, John, as mm. you keep, you
0: keep for, you keep throwing, you keep for, things in I didn't expect. We'll come on to the, uh, turf doctor later on. Um, yeah. Okay. And I'll be talking to Kieran. Uh, Kieran's a Brighton fan, therefore posh. Therefore, he probably plays, <laughs> po- probably plays polo. So we'll talk about that with him later. <laughs> um, we are a football finance pod, John. So we will get on to the economics later on. Yeah. But I, I'm genuinely fascinated by what, what you do. And, and Head Groundsman is probably a, the role that's changed and developed more than any other in football in the past 30 years, isn't it? I mean, you alluded to it yourself when, when Kieran and I started watching football, there was more brown than green on the pitch. We, we had a a celebrity in the seventies. Our groundsman was a bit of a a celebrity. Len Chatterton, his name was. And the reason he was a celebrity is that he converted a Volkswagen car into uh, a rolling machine. He took the wheels off and he, (laughs) he he turned them into rollers and they, they called this thing the flatterer, which confu- <laughs> confused me as a kid because I used to say, Dad, that should be flattener, shouldn't it? And he'd say, Shut up, son. <laughs> and, and at the half time, they'd say, Here comes the flatterer, and everyone would go, would go mad. And still to this day, I don't know what it did because it, it would have been better if it was a paint roller to put some green back on the pitch because it was, <laughs> it was an awful. One. But it, in the past 30 years, as you say, it's become a real science, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it has. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure that, that the flatterer is in a museum somewhere, maybe, or the, maybe I don't know if there's any videos of it, but I definitely will be looking it up. Um, but yeah, we, we've evolved into, we're, we're almost scientists now, mad scientists, a lot of us. Um, we work with something that is is living and breathing and changing and is dictated by the weather. Um so every day is different. Um we we see pressures in stadiums now where you can, you know, go home one night perfectly happy with the condition of the pitch and then the next day you come in and you know sixty percent of it's been wiped out by a disease of some description. Wow. Cool. Um and you know, we do a lot of work around, you know, certainly at Leicester we sort of pioneer in the way with pitch testing um in the Premier League and we test all of our pitches at the training facilities every single day of the week. Um, And we're testing for all sorts of parameters that are going to affect the players. Um, I tend to call us the sort of 1% club, you know, in terms of like marginal gains and all the rest of it that you hear about in Formula One and British cycling. Um, And I like to think of it as that way, both financially in terms of versus the revenue that's created by football clubs and our costs. Um, to keep our department operational. Um, But also just the small things that we can do to help the players ascertain sort of their peak levels. And I say with that testing that we're doing, you know, we have got someone who tests our pitches full time, day in, day out. That um, data is then given to our sports science and then, you know, up to them if they adjust or change the session based on what the pitches are reading. But we've been doing that for about five years now and we've brought the parameters down into what we call sort of like the Leicester framework where we know what our sweet spot is across our players. Um And say, from a given this is a financial podcast, um we always talk about the players being our most valuable asset, you know financially, that is the absolute truth um and a player on the you know the injury table or in rehab is costing the club a lot of money, and we do our little bit, I feel to try and prevent that. You know we are a contributing factor, pitches are a contributing factor, whether we like it or not, um but we have to be open. To understand what the pitchers are doing and how the players react to that, um, and we're doing that. I believe we're doing that really, really well at Leicester. We've got a great working relationship with our medical team. Um, they're on board with it, but also that's helped cement our reputation within the the football club and you know hopefully sort of widely, more widely in the Premier League. So, yeah, it's it's an art, it's a science. Uh, you have to, have, you can't live on data, but data is so important to us now because it's a language that most medical teams, board of directors, CEOs talk you know they talk about data um and it's what they relate to and uh yeah we're no different in terms of how we produce those here at leicester so yeah it's uh it's a lot i see i'm already i'm already rabbiting on and uh i could go down some real big rabbit holes if i wanted to but yeah it's um it's an art and it's a science for sure now gone yeah, are the days uh-huh. of mudbits I, I I don't like the the idea of a groundsman going down the rabbit hole, John. <laughs> Disturbs well, yeah.
0: um, me. I, I I can't quite get my head around what you've just said. That's it. It's almost science fiction. So you're analysing the pitch to come up with the optimum pitch for your players to play on. In other words,
2: yeah, and, and in terms of so the way that when when a player plants their foot. Well, whatever surface they're playing on, be it artificial, be it, you know, natural, be it stitch pitches that we've got here, constructed and non-constructed. Um, how that pitch reacts to them will dictate sort of how their muscles react, um, what sort of return they get up their leg in terms of spring, what we call spring rate or energy restitution. Um, and, you know, anyone that's got a bit of a sports science background will probably understand what I'm talking about. But, you know, what we want to do is give the players the best return so that they can hit their top loads. Um, so, for example, we know that if we run the pitch too soft, um, that won't suit the likes of Jamie Vardy, who needs pace and he needs, re- you know, reaction from the surface to hit his top load. Um, and we know that some of the, now, how's the best way to put it? Some of the older players <laughs> <laughs> would, prefer, <laughs> would potentially prefer like, a, you know, a more forgiving surface. You know, there's lots of talk in the media about, you know, all these modern surfaces and they're, they're too hard and this, that and the other, but it's all, it's unfounded. They are, they do run firmer, but, you know, players adapt and evolve into to these surfaces like they do anything. Um, but what we've done at Leicester is just try to reduce those parameters because the parameters swing from sort of, let's say, just for example, zero to 100 and that's your parameter, but we've just tried to hone it in to understand what is Leicester's optimum. Can't control it at away matches, yeah. but within what we can control, we do it and we run the stadium. There's there's pictures at the training round here at Seagrave that we run exactly the same numbers as it will be at the stadium. So the stadium is no different to our match day minus one training pitch, for example. Um, and we just hope that these little things, one, can protect the players and protect the asset, like I say, you know, really valuable assets, um, but also just help the team perform, you know, at their best. And we don't want to be a reason why they haven't performed or why... Um, they slip. You know, I always say this to my guys look, when we put pressure on how we manage these pitches, I always say to them, look, imagine it's the 94th minute and we are fifth in the table. And if whoever's taking the penalty scores, we are quids in, in terms of revenue from champions league and they slip, you know, that is my, I literally, it keeps me awake at night thinking about it. Um, and that's why we work so hard. And we, we are so intricate with what we do to the pitches to make sure that the players have, Sort of optimum contact with the surface, and you know, they get the reaction they need. And that we're not almost, oh, it's almost covering your arse, really. <laughs> You're you protecting yourself a little bit too. Um, but you want the best from players, so
0: you really have got a long way from a bloke with a pitchfork, haven't we? Uh, we still got them. Okay, <laughs> I, I, I have to say, hats off to Brendan Rodgers, because Leicester didn't have the best start for the season. And if I was Brendan Rodgers in those post match press conferences, I'd be saying, blame John. <laughs> it has it's got the wrong pitch for the players I'll put out it's um it's it's strange how football supporters minds work John um because yeah. I do have some more technical questions but I always I always say to mates I always say this is who we've come on this week you got anything to ask and they're all really interested that you were coming on but hmm. nearly all of them wanted to they want they just wanted to know what happens is it true one of them in particular said that before you start fixing the pitch at half time you have to talk to the referee you have to get his permission is that true that true no oh great no. okay
2: no, we um we tend to you know we we tend to avoid um pre match we tend to avoid going on the pitch because we want the players that you know at the end of the day we spend a lot of time on the pitch and it, and when the players come out of the tunnel that it's their pitch and we want them to you know we don't want to be in their way um, with our forks and all the rest of it. And, you know, at half time we come on and repair the pitch as part of our normal protocols anyway. So, yeah, there's no permissions needed. We just, you know, that's just part of the job. gonna right, I'm going, to, I'm going to stop doing my research in pubs. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe don't rely on your friends for research. Yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> uh, will we ever see – this is the other question they wanted to know – will we ever see an
2: artificial turf that is as good as grass? Um, I very much doubt it. Um, I, I don't. You know, I believe that artificial turf has its place. It absolutely does. You know, it depends on, certainly from, you know, if you're talking, again, finance, you know, finance in the lower leagues, um, if you've got a pitch that you can, I wouldn't say, a lot of them do do this, and they do abuse those sort of synthetic pitches and try and create as much revenue as possible. But it is to their detriment in terms of lifespan if they're not careful. Um, So I see its place in the lower leagues, and I understand why these lower league clubs do it, but I don't think they'll ever be a situation that we'll see where players um, want to move away from natural turf. You see it in the NFL. And we were over in America at the University of Tennessee um, last year speaking to one of the doctors over there about, because they're really sort of heavy into their pitch testing and, and data, and they're sort of maybe even more, well, they are more advanced than us, absolutely. Um, and there's a big revolt in the NFL about artificial turf. Um, but again, it has its place there because they they can sell it you know, 24, seven, almost, you know, inside of a stadium, it's quite a novelty to go on the pitch. Um, but the players eventually will start to talk because if you look at some of these, you know, it was, I don't know who it was. Cause I don't really follow the NFL sort of religiously, but one of the players um, had a non-contact injury, which was a typical injury you see on artificial, which is an ACL. And, um, and it ended his career, you know, and these, these, car- his career is worth an absolute fortune. So sooner or later, are there going to be lawsuits that that players sue the NFL for installing these artificial surfaces? I think in professional sport, um, natural, is always going to be preferable. Um, but I do see the need for artificial at the lower leagues. And of course, like across our academies, our academies are very busy. And our academy here um, do use synthetic turf a fair bit. You know, we've got two and a half pitches worth of it at our new training round and um it is handy for us in terms of managing pitches, but it would never be their preference or ours that they, they use that over and above what they'd use natural turf. So. If, if it's not sensitive
0: information, John, can you tell us how much it costs to maintain perfect pitches across free? So, I mean, what's your annual budget is, is what I'm asking.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's hard because I know I'll get in a lot of trouble for telling you the exact figures. But if I was to say we're probably about 2% of the annual turnover, it will give you an idea of the wow. budgets that we so you know it's um and that's why I call us the two percent Club, and i've used that analogy sometimes when i've been presenting to the board is sort of just to put it into context of the return they get for that investment um because I always say to them look, you know we are effectively r and d that's what we are we're an r and d budget we don't make a lot of money, but without doing the r and d there's a lot of potential risk that could put the business at you know at risk you know if the pitch isn't playable um then there's no match, there's no revenue, there's no game. But equally, without the players, there's no game. You know, so it's it's one of those things where we're part of a part of a big circle. Uh, we're we're a cog in a you know in a big mechanism. Um, but I believe that we're quite an important one um, in that. So yeah, it's, it, it costs a lot of money, um, but the return on that and the protection they get from the from the input is for me is is well worth it. Are you, are you as worried, John, about rising energy costs as
0: the rest of us? Because I, I've seen those huge light grids across the pitch at Sellers. They must be very expensive to run, aren't they?
2: Yeah, they are. Listen, I, I think, you know, um, unfortunately enough that I have sit on our sustainability working group at the club and, you know, it, it's a hot topic at the minute. We are looking to be more sustainable in the way that we manage our our energy um and the lighting rigs absolutely are a a very hot topic as you can imagine because they they consume a hell of a lot of energy they cost a lot to run and now with obviously the cost of energy sort of going through the roof as we've all seen um we have had to sort of strip back we have had to be more careful um you know because everything everything the club's justified there's obviously a you know, sometimes there's a, a fair few myths that all oh, these big clubs have got bottomless pits of money, and they just throw every anything, anything I want, I get, which is complete and utter uh, rubbish. Um, everything I want has to have a business case. Everything that we put in has to have a business case, um, and to, to sort of let the hierarchy understand why we want these things and what what sort of investment that looks like. So we are all, yeah, we're, we're all in it together, but we've all we're all working towards just trying to be more cautious, be more careful. Um, and work on a strategy that allows us to be sort of more sustainable financially and from obviously from a sustainability point of view as well. So yeah, it's it's hitting us all. It is hitting us all, and the and the light rigs are a big hot topic. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, I, I said because we've seen at Forest Green and other clubs uh, yeah. a, a very new environmentally aware approach to pitch maintenance. Is is that is that easier for a small club like Forest Green to make those changes that I think everybody wants to make? Is it? It, for a club like Leicester City is it like sort of turning a, a tanker halfway across the sea will it take you longer to to adapt to new environmentally friendly methods
2: I think uh, yes and no I mean I, th- I think the thing is is that you know we I always like to, the way I operate is I always like to try and be sort of 10 years ahead of what the industry's doing at the minute and so far you know things that we've been working on have have, have landed that way and there's projects that have come to the fore that we were working on a long time ago and I think that um it, I wouldn't say it's necessarily easier for them to do it, but there is always a pressure on on grounds teams up and down the country, especially in the Premier League when we're so visible, um, that the aesthetics that you see on a match day, that pitch, the second it's not green, it damages the brand. It damages the brand of the Premier League. It could potentially damage the brand of the football club because it becomes what you're known for. Um, so, and and that requires input and that requires product. There, but we are working, so we've got trial plots here as part of the Turf Academy, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But you know, we've got trials that we're running already that are trying to make us a, a bit more sustainable in the way that we manage our pitches because chemical legislation is changing rapidly. You know, obviously Brexit and that affected us quite a lot. Um, and the amount of chemicals available to us now to use is, is diminishing fast. So we're already working on methods and ways that we can sort of manage our pitches more sustainably. Um, but I wouldn't say it's any easier for Forest Green as it is for us. It's just there's probably, I would say, arguably more pressure on us because of the visibility of the football club and being in the Premier League. There's a level of expectation on pitches nowadays um, because one, we protect the asset and two, we protect the brand. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a bit tricky, but I wouldn't say it's like turn the tanker. I think once you get, you know, once we get a collective... Um, a collective um strategy and, and vision to where we want to be i think we'll get people on board and we'll turn it around relatively quickly well we also know you have the pressure from
0: broadcasters who demand <laughs> yeah. that the global product as you say that they're showing all over the world that everything looks that all the pictures have to look beautiful uh, yeah. at every ground so you you mentioned brexit there john so brexit is making it more difficult for you to access certain chemicals is that right
2: so it's it's more to do with the legislation around, you know, obviously there's a lot of EU legislation that, that dictates what we can, what chemicals we can apply on pitches. And obviously since, uh, you know, since Brexit, those, they've become a little bit more strained. Um, so it's not, they're not in force yet, but they're coming. There's a lot more, um, there's a lot more legislation coming in on the biostimulants that we use, that they have to be sort of CE registered um, so, there's a whole load of work that we're doing in the background on that as well to uh, to make sure that we're in a position where we're not caught with our pants down, basically. Um, you know, we're using, just to give you a, a couple of examples, we're using uh, a UVC light machine, uh, which is a machine that emits UVC rays, which basically smashes any pathogens, which is the thing that causes disease on pitches. Um, and then we're looking at sort of a more more sustainable nitrogen sources in terms of what we put on the pitches and then also how we capture our water. Cause water is a new gold as we've seen this summer. Yeah. Um, you know, we are at the stadium, we have got a water reclamation system under the pitch, which basically captures everything that makes it through the pitches captured and then reused. Um, and that can change some of the leached nutrient that comes out of those products. So we're just trying to close the loop on a lot of things, to be honest, because we can see the train. I always say this to my guys and they get fed up with me saying it, but I can see the train coming down the track and uh, we've got to be ready because um, it's coming whether we like it or not. So, yeah, it's a uh, it's, it's a constantly moving, complex piece of work to make us a lot more sustainable in the way that we operate. Now, you, you have mentioned this already, John, and I know
0: it's something close to your heart. But tell us a little bit about the Sports Turf Academy. Well,
2: yeah, it's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm exceptionally proud. It's like my child, really, to be honest. So <laughs> I, I don't know whether, you know, obviously people that listen remember when Coventry City left the Rico Arena, um, as it was back then, and moved to Northampton. Um, I took the decision to stay with the the arena company on the thought that, listen, of course the club will come back, and of course the club will um, play here next season. Um, as it turned out, they didn't. But that in my nature gave me a lot of headspace and I still have the book now I wrote out this sort of draft plan to build this sports turf academy because the industry needed a central place an inspirational place to try and capture the next generation of talent because you know it's not an obvious choice for school leavers um as I knew when I you know when I left school I left school with I was pretty much a straight A student not blowing my own bugle or anything but I did and all the teachers were saying to me, don't do that career. You know, just go and be a doctor or go and be a lawyer. You've got the capabilities to go to university. But, you know, I followed my sort of my heart and my gut, if you wanted to say that. And um, and I want to make it more of a choice. And so I wanted to create this inspirational venue. Um, and that two-page um, draft then turned into a 45-page business plan, um, of which I probably would have needed about 18 to 20 million to get it off the ground. Um so when I sort of proposed to some investors about what that would look like when they looked at a sort of, you know, 25 year return on investment, they weren't particularly pleased. Um, so parked it for a long time and then come to Leicester and really, really fortunate here that I was I was sort of front and center when it came to being on the project board to deliver the new training facility. And at that point, I took a, a diluted business plan because the things on there that I had, I had a warehouse, I had a hotel, I had this, I had that. So I diluted it down to be more um, sort of relevant to what we were building at Leicester and proposed it to the CEO um, who loved it and in turn took it to Kumbishai at the time. And um, he backed us and he said, look, go build it, um, wow. but it's got it's got to wash its face. That's they were, that was the words they ring in my ear still today. Um, it's got to wash its face because, you know, there are no handouts here. Um so, from a capital perspective, they invested in the building that we sit in today, which is our sports deaf academy building um and the business plan operates across four pillars, uh which is training and education, so we deliver training and education and we put twenty five apprentices through our system last year um and that they all belong to the football club so they the football club we did a big drive for recruitment, so a lot of our recruits were apprentices and um, we successfully took them through uh, their apprenticeships and now they're sort of fully um fully contracted members of the football club. Um, And we offer bespoke one day training. We had some international guys over from Slovenia uh, last month and they undertook a five day intense course. Um, I'm hoping at some point to get into doing some light touch, anecdotal stuff with pundits just to try and educate them a bit more when they make these sort of broad stroke comments on what a pitch is doing or why we're watering or why the ball's holding up, which is all, Rubbish. It was just a polite. <laughs> I nearly swore then. Sorry. um And uh I just want to educate them a bit more um and referees. But we we have the capability in house with I say Dr. Jonathan Knowles is the guy who heads it up for me in terms of the day to day management, and he's he's got 19 years in an academic setting, and uh, he's been an absolute godsend. So training education is really important to it's sort of one of our core pillars. Um, and then we've got trials and research. So we we run we've got a thousand square meters of trial plots all constructed like football pitches um, and we run various different trials on their new and -and up-and-coming technologies but the difference with us is we're truly independent so we're informing the industry rather than trying to sort of commercially do deals with a fertilizer company to say that their their fertilizer is the best fertilizer in the world we just (laughs) rip it apart basically um but you know the trials and research is another really important area for the industry um it's it's one of our sort of we have a, we have a thing through the business plan called a double bottom line. We've got a bottom line. We've got to make money because I can still hear conviction now saying you must wash your face. Um, but we also have a, an obligation to the industry to put something back into it and an obligation to make the industry better. Um, so, you know, the trials and research is definitely part of that. Um, third pillar is tournament, su- uh, tournament support. So currently we have one of our staff in Qatar for the World Cup. Um, He's a venue manager at Al Janub. so we work with the likes of FIFA. Um, you know, we're, We've had ne- negotiations with Wimbledon to put staff in there. We've got um, links into the John Deere Classic in America where we put staff. And the, the theory behind that is, is that basically we want to give the students that come into our operation the best possible chance to see what this industry can give you because this industry can take you around the world or it can keep you in Leicester or it can take you to Ackridge and Stanley. It doesn't really matter where you go. But we want to show them the broad spectrum of what it can look like through golf, through landscaping, through football um, and through mechanics. Um, so, so tournament support is a really important part of that. And um, and then the final pillar, which is, you know, another one that's really important to us is our technical services. Um, so we operate on three tiers on that. Third tier is we work with um, grassroots clubs through Leicestershire, where we go out, offer them help and advice. And we also implement sort of improvement works, to their pitches. Um, so we go out and help them approve, get approved funding from the football foundation. And then we give them a plan on how they could best spend that money. And then it's up to them to tender it. But usually well, we've got a hundred percent conversion rate that all those guys have come to us and then we carry out the work. And in the last 12 months, um, this is a target I'm really proud of is, is we've improved over 200 p- grassroots pitches across Leicestershire. Wow. Um, and that's with one man in a truck. And that is a very transferable business model to a lot of football clubs. Um, And I'm hopeful that a few more will take that up because, you know, the money is there through the funding um, and all you really need. There's a lot of surplus equipment in a football club in our departments that may be used once a month. Um, So they're sat there depreciating, not making any money. Um, What we've basically done is put one man in a van out and um, he goes out to all these clubs and he'll do some renovation works. He might be aerating or seeding or scarifying all the jobs. We don't cut grass. We don't mark out. We just do all the jobs that these clubs typically don't have. And then what we do on a sort of, you know, twice a year, we invite all those volunteers because they're all volunteers. It's all Uncle Bob doing it for his nephew or, you know, Grandad Joe doing it for his grandson. And they're all brilliant, brilliant characters and brilliant people all doing it for free. So twice a year, we'll invite them into Turf Academy. We'll do them a little tour of the training round. And we do a little bit of sort of light touch education with them and sort of give them a bit of information to how they can make their pitches better sort of in-house um so yeah so you know that's it's a really important part that's our tier three tier two is same with grassroots but more capital project based so they might have a drainage project or a new pitch construction that they need advice on and that tier two stuff is just stuff is just a an advisory service for those guys um, and that's pretty much foc as a rule um and then tier one is where you get access to someone like me who can come in and might have to sort of do a departmental audit it depends on where you are and we've done one for a couple of private schools where they've wanted to restructure their department. And we've gone in and helped them sort of visualize that and take them on that journey. So, yeah, it's, um, it's diverse, but ultimately um we reinvest our profits back into um, bringing new staff in and putting more apprentices through our system. Um, so it's sort of like a self-funding model. Um, And we made a, a, our first year operating, we we anticipated we'd probably lose about £8,000 as typically any business would. Um, but we were fortunate enough to sort of make a 39% net profit on um, wow. our first year. And every single penny, um, and I say that with my hand in my heart, every single penny of that has gone back in. So none of it comes to me. There's no shareholders, no directors, there's no dividends to pay. Um, all of that goes back in. We we pay our dues in terms of, you know, we do a proper P&L. Um, we've got revenue streams, cost of sales, below the line costs with salaries and all the other depreciation and one thing and another. So we run it like a proper business and um, that has given me a, a suite of skills I never thought I'd have as well. But um, yeah, it really, really interesting and uh, it shows it can be done uh, with the right person at the helm and, and with the right back in. It's something that's a transferable model and I would love to see other Premier League clubs, lower league clubs do something on a similar scale and because uh, it's only going to benefit the industry ultimately and that's what I built this for is to benefit the industry. It's not a—it's not the John Ledridge Sports Tech Academy, put it that way. I mean, that's amazing. I, I, I love an
0: answer where I can go off and make a cup of tea and come back and it's, it's still <laughs> I told you I just no,
2: yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's,
0: it's, 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 do you know what? It's, uh, it's absolutely fascinating. And all that came about from an, a, an A4 sheet of paper. There, there is one thing I will say. That, and I, You won't mind me saying this because you've talked about this yourself. You talk about attracting new talent, young people, but... The one thing that hasn't changed about ground staff in fifty years is, is diversity. Basically, yeah. you said yourself, there is a lack of women, there is a lack of people from ethnic minority backgrounds. How do you hope to change that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 almost it's not. I mean, it's not a sad fact, but it, it, you know, in the times that we live in, we we've got to be more diverse, and we've got to start attracting sort of different sort of ethnic backgrounds to, to what we do. Um, you know, I think there was a stat produced by the Grounds Management Association. I think we are ninety eight percent white males you know and that's that's such a big stat you know it's and it's it's disappointing but you know it's um it's something we've got to work on and i think it's a case of um we are doing a lot in terms of we're going to start working with our with our community projects you know obviously most clubs have got a football in the community project and they tend to reach out to the areas where there are those different ethnic diversity where there is more ethnic diversity and we're sort of one of our missions is to coattail those guys and, and just raise awareness about what we're doing and just try and sort of capture the imagination of, of those those minority groups and even if they come and you know have an interview and sort of get that get that point across. I mean, I'm talking on a very um on a I wouldn't say a personal basis, but sort of like I'm siloed into that's ground staff. The club as a you know, as a on a whole has got a big diverse range of employees um but it's a ground staff just seems to be a struggle for us to change that stereotype and we will work hard and we're trying to work with ways with the grounds management association to see how we can be more diverse and appeal to to those sort of ethnic minorities and and hopefully see more of them coming through we've got we currently have one female working with us in our uh, landscapes department and uh, we've had in the past two or three females that have worked with us but you know for one reason or another they've left um be it that it you know it wasn't what they thought it was going to be in terms of the workload and um and the sort of the, op- the way we operate um and one of the girls we had and I was I was devastated to lose her um she left to go to university she was a young girl come to us you know and sort of I I I liked what I liked the most about her was that she you could place her in a sort of normal set you know she was a normal 18 year old girl where you know she had her mates who were going to college doing whatever they were doing sort of maybe stereotypical careers in sort of beauty and hair and you know veterinary this that and the other and she had chose this career in in sort of sports turf and uh, she was dead proud of it and she loved it but then the the law of university and that yeah. and the university lifestyle she felt she was missing out on um took her away from us which i was i was gutted about because i thought she had real potential but maybe she'll come back one day but um we need more people like that we need and she, we know we wanted her to be a bit of a role model but that law of the university and and She's gone to study some sort of sport, sporting degree there. Um, but yeah, it was disappointing. But we need to work harder, but we will do. And um, we'll continue to bang the drum until hopefully we can, we can at least see a bit of a change. I suppose your problem is
0: that you're very visible, aren't you? Almost after the players, it's it's ground staff that you see more than anybody else. If you're in the ground or on TV, and, yeah. and and until you know women and and young black and Asian people can see themselves doing the job, they probably think it's not for them. But once once you get the, the 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 avalanche started then that's that's what you need isn't it we you get one and then that leads to two and that leads to four and that's because I yeah, mean
2: exactly. where, where you are I mean because Leicester is an incredibly diverse city isn't it yeah, yeah it absolutely is and I think there's a you know there's a couple of things that I think is is the more we raise awareness about this not being sort of like a, a last chance saloon, you know, where you, it's the only thing you've got left. So you, know, you tend to find <laughs> yeah. that people go, oh, well, I'm not very good academically, so I'll go into landscaping. That stereotype needs to disappear because yeah. there's so many relatable sort of STEM subjects that are involved with our job. Um, you know, it's just raising that awareness of, of, and making it sort of more of a viable career choice um and like you say we are so visible and i think if we we can sort of engage that wider audience and and get them involved and you know maybe get a few more people through the door and actually sort of on a program with us then hopefully more will follow because we will make them ambassadors we will make them role models because that's a way of making it relatable to them i guess john this has been
0: absolutely fascinating interview really has but and i have one question and it's it's not at all facetious, it may sound out. will you be watching the World Cup or or, or do you just look at the
2: pitches? I, I think it's probably a syndrome that I most of my sort of colleagues would sort of sympathize or empathise with. We do spend most of our time just looking at the pitch. The best shots that we get <laughs> is when it zooms in ground level, you know, we get quite excited about that. And you know, there's <laughs> little things that my, my guys laugh about is, is that like when the when the camera angle goes for a goal kick behind the goal. Um, I'll be looking how straight the goal clips are on the goalposts. posts um, <laughs> you know it's, it, we are sad we are a sad sad bunch we really are when I think about it like that but yeah I'm you know I, I still love football um, I'm not as enthusiastic about it as I used to be because I'm around it all day every day Yeah. but I will I'll be watching it I'll be watching the pictures obviously like I said we've got one guy one of our guys out there um, at Janub, the stadium out there um, which is hosting up to the round of 16 um, so I'll be definitely interested in what he's doing and his pitch but yeah in general always looking at the pitches rarely looking at the football but you know maybe if England have a good run I might be a bit more enthusiastic about it who knows it's it's lovely John to talk to somebody who's so passionate
0: about what they do and thank you. has given us such a genuine insight into into the modern world of of, of pitch maintenance and, and science it's been fascinating so I really thank you for that uh, all the best for the future no thanks Kevin. That's fascinating i i i just as I said during the interview, I just kept crossing questions out and adding new ones in as we talked about golf courses and and polo farms and all sorts of things and i I particularly love the fact that he said he will be watching the World Cup, but mainly for the behind shots of the goals to check <laughs> the statues
1: that was i mean that was really interesting Kieran, wasn 't it 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 was it was it was an education i i I yeah. learned more uh from listening to John about the science yeah. of his role um and i never thought that creating a pitch aimed at particular players could be achieved and and it was oh. absolutely incredible stuff uh and also to to meet somebody with such a passion and a love for what they do was was truly uplifting but also i like the fact that he talked about
0: Two percent of the the club's budget went on his staff, his pitch. But I like the fact that he was. It's worth every penny because it could make the difference. You know that, that the pitch that we create for our players at home could make the difference between a one 0 win or a 0-0 draw. I thought it's really interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah, and he 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 knows his to say he knows his stuff inside out is, is great, and also the fact that he wants to inspire others yes. to give them opportunities um, was, was a sign of a person with a, with a set of values that you can only admire.
0: Yeah. Uh, thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to join them and make a small monthly contribution to the pod, then thank you very much. And so go to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. We'll be back on Monday with our questions pod and in the meantime i shall hand you over to mr Kieran maguire for his customary farewell
1: well um as this show's almost two hours long i'd just like to say thanks very much everybody we'll see you monday